Welcome to Look Over Here, conversations with photographers and creatives working in the field of photography. I'm your host, Austin Nelson. This episode features Diane Cook and Lynn Genschel, two outstanding photographers who have worked together as a duo since 1991. Lynn and Diane sat down with me in their home on the Upper West Side in New York to discuss their personal histories in the field, the differences between their fine art and editorial work, the process of shooting a story for National Geographic, and what it's like to create photographs as a team. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with any photography enthusiasts in your life. And check out lookoverherepodcast.com for additional content, photos, and resources. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy. Hey, everybody. I'm here today with my friends and former bosses, uh, <laughs> Diane Cook and Lynn Gentil. Uh Thank you guys for doing this. Of course. And, Our pleasure, really. And let me tell everybody a little bit about you guys. You've worked together as a photography team, uh, as a married couple for how long now? Since 1991, I think, was the beginning of our first project, collaborating together. How did that start? How did you guys decide to work together as a team? We started actually when Len was working on travels in the American West, and I often went on a lot of those trips with him. I was working in black and white at the time, and Len was, of course, working in color. Uh, and we go to a place and head off in different directions. And when we came back to New York and looked at many weeks of traveling, we'd find that we'd actually photographed the same rock or the same tree or the same path in places. But entirely different, entirely different interpretations of those things. And then we wondered, hmm, what would it look like if we collaborated in both black and white and color? color being more descriptive, black and white being more abstract and ethereal, and that the two might have a wonderful dialogue, hopefully the way we had a wonderful dialogue. What are the origins of your lives in photography individually? I actually went to art school, went to Cooper Union and graduated in 75, photographed with uh, Gary Winogrand and Todd Papa George, so... Uh, I had a pretty wonderful education. In fact, that was the first time I actually loved school. I was one of those kids who absolutely hated school. I couldn't stand it until I finally went to art school and I guess found myself. So after that, I um, worked with a Leica and then I switched to medium format camera. And I was working very much in the tradition of Winogrand, who was a very famous black and white street photographer. And I guess my epiphany came on Bicentennial Day, uh, July 4th, 1976, when I was photographing down at the Bowery with a big celebration of America. And I said to myself, I hate this stuff. This is so awful. You so mean the battery. The battery, the park. You said the Bowery. Oh, I meant the battery. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I switched to medium format, and it pushed me further away from things, and then I realized landscape was really what I was most interested in. Um, I switched to color at Cooper Union, and so um, there was a school that was beginning that we called the New Color Photography. And it was great to be a part of that at the very inception of that because it was new, it was intriguing, it was a lot of people using color the way people had used to use black and white. It wasn't color as advertising, which was, I think, the more prominent way that 
color film was being used at that time. True. Yes, it was documentary tradition. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, in the fine arts, mm-hmm. and um, it was great to be at the beginning of that revolution. Uh, I think that's what launched my career. Uh, a couple of years later, I got a National Endowment for the Arts and a Guggenheim, and I felt like my career had been kind of rocketed. That's incredible. And you're born and bred in New York. My whole life, yep. In Bed-Stuy? Born in Bed-Stuy, right. (laughs) And Diane? I think, well, first as a kid, um, my first recollection of the photographic process, um, my parents and family were all insane snapshot photographers. But I had a um, distant uncle who photographed store windows. He was hired by department stores and he uh, would go out at night and photograph those window displays. And his brother, who is a close uncle of mine, um, had a dark room in the basement. He took me in there and I saw this magic happen in these trays of chemicals and I was just mesmerized by the process. Um, but didn't get into it until, in a serious way, until my college years. I was studying painting and art history and thought I needed to perhaps have some means of earning a living when I graduated and thought that photography could be something I could do. Uh, so I started studying photography, but uh, my the school that I was going to didn't have a terrific photography department, but um, a teacher there recommended that I study with Larry Fink independently. And I had a car, so I would drive out to his farm in um, Pennsylvania and started taking classes with him, just studying independently. And he basically kind of shifted my direction by saying, look, you're not a Renaissance person. You can't be good at that many things, so choose one of them and just devote yourself to it. So photography was the thing that I devoted myself to. And it was interesting because Larry Fink and Gary Winogrand were somewhat competitive figures at that time in the art world. And so when I first met Len, we had a lot of heated discussions about who was the whose teacher was better. Or who was the better photographer. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was interesting being able to, uh, you know, stand our ground and, and what we believed in in photography. So we, we formed an instant means of communicating and compromise, let's say, early on in our relationship. Which probably led to the collaboration. Probably. (laughs) We knew we could work together. Right. Well, I think that that's been something that I've always admired about you, too, is that you you both working together, you have to give up a lot of ego, I think. And the compromise is a beautiful thing, but it's very difficult. I think it's very hard when you're working with something as personally creative as photography to give up that much uh, ego but to still make something that's creatively successful. Hmm. It reminds me of one of Winogrand's favorite expressions, which was, as an artist, your two worst enemies are your ego and your preconceptions. Hmm. Always love that. That's great. Yeah. Did but Larry I, no, Fink right. have a, a quote that was as good? <laughs> uh, no, unfortunately, I think Gary Winogrand wins that argument. <laughs> But I think you're totally right, Austin. I'm, we feel that when we're working together. Um, you know, it's not just a compromise, but it's the fact that the ego is very small. You know, you want the other person to take over if you're not doing well or come up with a better solution to the problem or make a better or more interesting picture. Um, it's something we 
are not competitive about, we actually cherish those moments. One of our great jokes is when we're working together on a project, like Aquarium, for instance, and I could not make a picture work in color, so I would walk up to Diane and say, I think this is a black and white picture. And she would do exactly the opposite when she was having problems. So um, one way it worked for both of us. I feel like when, you know, for as long as I've known you guys, which is it's been a while now, I don't think I ever saw you two cave or, or just give up on a creative uh, debate or discussion about one of the projects. You always tried to make your point and you know you came to an agreement or compromise, but you never just said, okay, fine, whatever you want. And I always admired that. I always defer to Diane. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can't That's see... That's the key to our marriage. Wait, you can't see that <laughs> through audio, but that was a major eye roll I just did. <laughs> So I just wasn't around for those, I guess. <laughs> I no. think uh, people have said who've um, been on road trips with us that, that um, it's amazing that we can have such a heated discussion and get over it so quickly. <laughs> hmm. Well, I, 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 d- I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I learned to expect more of myself and my work because of you guys. I remember editing stuff for you. And Lynn coming in and saying that needs one point of cyan in the highlights or something like that. And or I was it was like, wow. me saying, take out the cyan. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> More likely. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, like one point. Like, I, you know, I can't even see that. And, and I mean, eventually I did learn to understand that a little more i remember you having a show and going to the gallery and taking a light meter in to meter the light so that you would know how exactly to print your prints it seemed so obvious to me that i'm going into print for an entire show why not set up my lights which were on a dimmer at the same intensity as the gallery so you don't get to the show and then say oh shit i printed the whole show too dark so, or to magenta or whatever. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's so logical. Yeah. And I remember the gallery director, I won't name names, uh, rolling his eyes saying, oh, this guy is a fucking kook. <laughs> <laughs> but he's that gallery director still remembers that story and admires Len for it now. So, <laughs> you yeah. think so? Yeah, I do. I okay. Do. Yeah, you're right. Um, I do think uh, in this as you know, we've said many times, in this age of instant gratification, um, we do have a pretty strong work ethic and feel that we need to be prepared for as much as you can be. Um, I think in, in our minds always when we're about to you know, go out to work or just as a basic background philosophy for us is what Thomas Edison said about you know, work is... 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. We always over-prepare so that we're you know, ready, and we do push ourselves a lot. Um, and also that we've recognized after so many years of working together what each other's strengths are. Um, for instance, Diane is an incredible researcher. Um, she does all the background and research and figures out what we're going to photograph. Uh, she's just really good at that, and I'm not. I'm. Wait, I'll, I'll say what you're good at, okay? <laughs> Don't you brag about yourself. Um, I think Len is exceptionally talented at persuading people 
to give us time and access to places to photograph. Um, and um, he's quite charming and is able to do it. And, you know, the usual line that people give him when he's asking for permission for us to get to a place to photograph is like, why do you need two or three days to photograph this? When the newspaper photographer came around, they only needed 10 minutes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's his job to explain the art of perfection. And what is the explanation? Well, I will tell them, like for this Wise Trees project, for example, we needed access to a private uh, farm to photograph an old burr oak tree. And I told them, well, it's National Geographic, and we believe in perfection, so I want to be there all day long. I want to watch the light change on that tree. I want to even see it at nighttime, and then I want to come back the next day when the light will be totally different. And that's how I think, you know, people are finally persuaded. I think also it's, you know, our discord belief that, well, in the, in the case of wise trees, that a tree doesn't reveal its secrets in 10 seconds or 10 minutes. It takes a period of time to get to know your subject. And, you know, we approach landscape as if we're doing a portrait of a place. And so you don't know all you know about a person. That place takes some time to, takes time to reveal itself to you. So let's talk about Wise Trees for a minute. This is a project you worked on for two to three years. Yep. More. Yeah. More. And uh, this this has been kind of, you've been preparing for this for a long time because I think it was an idea, at least the germ of an idea for many more years. Well, I think, I mean, most of our work for National Geographic has been environmental and landscape issues both the way nature is created and the ways that humans leave their marks on the landscape, both good and bad. And I think with Wise Trees, we were looking for a project to work on where there, where there was the interrelationship and story behind nature and humans. And so trees, um, which have been instrumental to the development of civilizations around the world, we wanted to tell individual stories of trees and their importance to human life. So we found trees like Isaac Newton's apple tree and the tree Buddha attained enlightenment under and it was really thrilling for I think Diane and I to do the research. Again, she did most of it, but finding trees that had an incredible story to tell, you know, whether it was historic or whether it was inspirational, or whether it was about spirituality. And survivor trees, too. We photographed the trees in Japan, in Nagasaki, that survived the atomic bomb, and a tree in Hiroshima that survived an atomic bomb. Uh, the 9-11 tree down at the World Trade Center, and the Oklahoma bombing tree. So it was uh, an incredibly interesting project. You know, it wasn't going out there and saying, oh, let's just photograph trees that are gorgeous. You know, we had, they had to have a story. There's so much more work involved than what you see when you look at the images. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having worked with you guys personally, I saw how much research you would do on projects. When I was working with you, you did the night gardens, the gardens by night, mm -hmm. of photographing famous gardens of the world all around the world by moonlight. But not only was it the research and the travel and the fixers and all of that, but also... How do you get the gear to work? How do you get the digital sensors to not make too much noise from overheating from a 30-minute exposure 
or longer. It's interesting. At the beginning of our careers, we were photographing with film, we should say. Uh, we still have actually a dark room here. That's um, a black and white dark room. But actually, when we worked on, when we began Night Gardens, we were shooting film. And then digital sensors got to be quite a bit better than when we started the project. And when we realized that we could, you know, cut exposures from two hours to 20 minutes maybe or less um, and also be able to look at the screen on the back of the camera to say you know is this a picture we really want to spend you know a lot of time exposing and then then having the noise reduction time uh, added on to the exposure time you know you really wanted to make sure you were interested in the picture but having the ability to look at what you're doing in the field to make adjustments uh, change the frame change the exposure um, you know, that was something we could talk about as we were working uh, during the night. So our when, methodology of working changed a lot when digital became our preferred medium. Um, because then also we could take a look again back, uh, you know, uh, on our laptops and think about it. Okay, do we, you know, how, how would we change this? How can we make it better? It's always a question of how, we, how can we make it better. That's always the... The thing that we're asking ourselves and pushing ourselves to do. And I think part of the collaboration is interesting because we're both working with our own cameras, but then, you know, consulting with each other. And, you know, we might say that we're collaborating, but we're, there's still a competitive edge, believe me. Um, it's like, okay, you did that picture, I'll show you my picture, and it's going to be better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember when we were shooting film in Night Gardens, so we would... First, we'd go out with three cameras and three tripods each, so we were making six pictures at the same time, trying to get some production from the evening, because you're talking two, three-hour exposures. You know, if we had one camera, we would come back with six pictures for a whole night's work. And, you know, those photographers out there who know the art of editing, you know, that doesn't put your odds very good at getting a good picture for a whole night's work. So we tripled our input, but it just became too much, you know? We didn't, we take copious notes and we would write down, okay, this picture at that cactus, two hour exposure, and you write down all your information because we also had to learn how to expose. No light meters worked. It was just too dark, it was just moonlight. And it was just incredibly challenging after we were running around with chickens without heads after a timer went off because we couldn't remember which, which camera was that. Was that out in the field? Was that the one by the pool? Um, so it became too much, and we went down to two cameras and tripods apiece, and at the end we were just doing one each. Um, well, it's digital, certainly, yeah. I'm, I don't know if we answer your question, though. Yeah, no. definitely. Okay. I, I think just knowing how much goes into this stuff mm -hmm. is is very interesting. Uh, Total well, learning also, curve. I, I should say, because you mentioned editing, um, I really have a strong belief in the art of editing. Uh, and certainly when you work at National Geographic, because you're... Uh, every raw frame goes to your editor. Um, so you get to put in your, say, selects, and then your editor goes through the pictures and, and could be rather brutal. This picture you thought was a masterpiece is like, I've seen this a hundred times. I don't need to see it again. And you are 
given the chance to edit with that person and articulate your um, preferences or why you think it's a good picture, but ultimately, of course... Quote, sell the picture. You, yes, okay, sell the picture is probably the better way to say that. But, you know, in the end, it's National Geographic who has the last word, but you do learn to become an articulate advocate for your work. And I think that's an important skill to have in the world of photography because if you're not the articulate advocate for your work, who else is going to be? And not just the picture. You right. know, you sell the story three times. Uh -huh. You pitch it and have to convince them that this is a great story. And then you go down to Washington, D.C. to headquarters and you have a halfway show, which is an incredibly stressful presentation, polished perfect presentation of what you've done halfway through the project to see if you get thumbs up or thumbs down or and that I would liken to Nero in the Colosseum whether you that you get the thumbs up or thumbs down and we're going to be fed to the lions right. <laughs> and if you go forward then you do it again mm -hmm. then you do the final show so you're selling your story three different times and it's as I said incredibly stressful but I think as Diane said incredibly valuable um, something that you learn to do well and it, you realize is an incredible resource, that it's so important because you're doing it every day in life, you know? The old elevator pitch, you know? You have your chance to sell something to somebody. Um, you better know how to do it. I think, you know, a very, very small number of people know firsthand what that National Geographic process is like. And you guys have been shooting with National Geographic for how long? Um, I think our first story was in 1996, and then we had a bit of time off, came back again in 2006 when we w did the story on the first attempt at building a border wall during the uh, George Bush administration, which for us was kind of like the perfect story um, to look at the impact that built structures have on a natural environment. Um, Which was also feeding into three of our fine arts mm. sensibilities, um, border, boundary, um, all the things we were interested in showing in our work. Um, we and had a chance to the explore. Human, the human mark on the landscape. Right. Yeah, it was just, uh, it was a kind of a wild time. We've had some interesting experiences working on National Geographic stories. I mean, you know, people get rammed by rhinoceroses and, you know, charged by tigers and stuff. And we had rocks and things thrown at us at the border. When we were working on wise trees and we're in Mozambique, we got banned from the village, the very village of the tree we wanted to photograph because there were elections going on and the village chief thought we were CIA agents there to um, disrupt the election. Um, he actually wow. banned us from the village. <laughs> He said, if you guys show up here again, there's going to be trouble. And, uh, you know, he said to us, he said, I can't believe two Americans would come all the way from America to photograph a tree. So you must be here <laughs> and, on, for the CIA. And Len turned to me and said, I can't believe we're here to photograph a tree. <laughs> we had already been there for two days and luckily had gotten the picture we needed in the first two days. So but we didn't sleep the rest of the two days we were there because every night we'd, we were in this little <laughs> hut that didn't have a locked door, and we'd think 
they're coming to get us with machetes. You know, we'd hear this rustling in the bushes and think, this is it, we're going. No, my fantasy, we were going to get strung up from that tree that we were photographing. (laughs) (laughs) So what led up to your tenure at National Geographic? What were you doing before? Have you ever done any commercial work? Has it always been fine art and editorial? Pretty much fine art and editorial. Um, We were doing travel features mostly before that for... Condé Nast Traveler and a lot of the travel magazines and Geographic was the first heavy journalism that we did. You know, it wasn't journalism in the sense that you're thinking of that word. You know, we were doing environmental stories and we were doing our picture. We were doing landscape. But still now, in the past, if we wanted our pictures to tell a story, we would have done it metaphorically. You know, we really believed that metaphor was the greatest tool in the fine arts for pushing the content of a picture beyond what was literally in front of you. Um, But we pretty much were free, and now there was a little more emphasis and constraints on us to tell a story. And that's what Geographic did. Um, Yeah, but I think the, the sort of underlying thought here is in this world you change or you die right and so you have to be willing to change it and move on a dime you know just you have to adapt well our mottos since we've actually started working together you know is we wear many hats mm-hmm. you know we do our own fine arts projects we try to get funding sometimes we can't um, we do magazine work Um, We lecture, we teach, or I used to teach, I don't anymore, Uh, do workshops. There's just, you know, all the different things that help bring in uh, money. Um, To keep you doing what you love doing. Right. And I think that's the real bottom line is you have to really love what you're doing because you might not be doing it for a lot of money. Right. Very true. Which brings back Austin's question, which we actually sidestepped very well about advertising. (laughs) We've chosen, well, we did one or two, not heavy core advertising assignments, but we chose early on that we did not enjoy it enough to warrant all that stress and all that work because it does pay much better than editorial. Maybe that Um, was a foolish choice, but we went with (laughs) the, the, uh, the stories and the choice of working for you know, environmental magazines that might not pay you very well, but, you know, took you to Bangladesh or took you to the highlands of Peru to see the glaciers and unfortunately photograph the glaciers that are melting. Um, You know, those were priceless experiences that I would not change for a minute for more money. Right. And it was better than photographing Steve Jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Are we allowed to tell that story? Uh, we could. <laughs> yeah, so one of our... Um, He's not going to get mad. So. No. <laughs> uh, one of our... Well, and it wasn't one of our first assignments, but a, an assignment that we were doing for Fortune magazine way back when was an assignment about Fortune 500 companies that were founded in garages. and It was more of a portfolio. It was a portfolio of pretty incredible places. You know, Walt Disney's garage, Hewlett Packard's garage, um, Henry Ford's garage before there was a garage because he was inventing a car Um, and then um, the idea to photograph the garage where Steve Jobs and 
uh, Wozniacki invented the Apple computer came up. I won't go into the whole long saga with that, but um, when Steve Jobs finally acquiesced to being photographed, although all the other garages, we didn't photograph people because they weren't there anymore on the planet, um, he said that he would give us permission to photograph him with one roll of film. And at that time, we had a medium format camera that only had eight frames. So that meant between the two of us, 16 frames. And he was incredibly rude. Um, and after we finished our eight frames and I tried to sneak in another roll of film, he caught me and he's like, no, you're done. Um, well, this is actually after he had come out of a 45-minute car phone screaming tirade at mm -hmm. somebody else mm -hmm. and came out really in a bad mood and just was very rude and not much fun to be with. So anyway. Anyway, so we, we called our editor at Fortune after we finished the shoot and said, I don't think we got a cover. It's going to be really slim pickings here because we were only, you know, told her the whole drama with him being an asshole. And she said, well, did he throw anything at you? Did he throw a light stand at you? And we're like, no. She's like, well, then he liked you. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And they did. It wasn't. A, it ended up not being, thankfully, a cover story. But um, they did. That was the opening picture for the portfolio of garages. So celebrities was something, along with advertising, we kind of uh, decided not to do. Um, Except when David Byrne asked you to go on the set of True Stories. That's true. Uh, and got that great gig you with William Eggleston being the other photographer, right. so didn't want to turn that one down. No. And <laughs> David Byrne was not an asshole. No. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about that project a little bit, actually. Um, how did that come about? Um, I'm asking because I remember the story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh. we were in Maine, and I called in at a... Remember those things called phone booths? Oh, my gosh. I went to a phone booth and called up my machine and see if what was going on, and there was a call from a woman at Viking Press to call her back, called her back, and she said, well, we're doing this uh, movie with David Byrne, and he's going to be making a movie down in Texas. And I stopped her and said, David Byrne from Talking Heads? And she said, you know, thank God, you know. Okay, you got the job. <laughs> so he wanted you to photograph the reality-based uh, life of Texas to show that his movie was not being created in a vacuum. Right. That it had a basis in reality. Because yeah. that movie is pretty wacky. And One I was would... doing that kind of work at the time, too. My landscape was involved with real versus unreal, and even ideal. Um, so you, you know, you're out there in the landscape and you're photographing a mural, um, you know, what's real, what's fake, what's advertising, what's video, uh, certainly a theme of David Burns. So there was a nice harmony to, uh, working with him. Um, and I loved working with him, admire him, amazing musician and artist. He is, he really is. And he asked you and William Eggleston. That's yeah. So the book was uh, our pictures, and along with some of David Byrne's pictures as well, and the person who was the hired to do the stills mm -hmm. on the set. Yeah, um, and the book is called True Stories, which is the name of the movie he made back in 1986. Uh, and Diane, am I correct that you were a photo editor for a while? 
Yes. Um, when I first met Len, he was teaching photography. Um, I had a very, very brief foray into working for a commercial photographer when I graduated from college and hated it uh, and thought, oh, there's got to be a better way to kind of balance my fine arts work with um, having a means of earning a living that didn't involve being with a neurotic, insane photographer in a studio. And we always thought that maybe Austin spoke about us that way, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no way. <laughs> um, so I first started working at a picture archive, the Bettman Archive, um, which was a lending library of engravings and old historic photographs. Um, and then from there I started, after Len got his Guggenheim in 1980, I quit my job and traveled with him. And then when I came back to New York, I started freelancing as a photo editor and then worked at magazines for a while until uh, Len then started getting gigs for magazines uh, to do travel assignments. So he was giving up teaching and he did a very clever thing. He started <laughs> hiring these really attractive female assistants to go off to the Caribbean to photograph these resorts. And I'm sitting there in my office and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> can do this better than they can <laughs> so yeah that ploy worked really well I quit my job and we started working together <laughs> in 1991 yeah but I think the experience of being a picture editor um, created a kind of economy of work ethic when we were in the field working together because um, Len is a very meditative and thoughtful person who can spend that was flattering. Um, well, wait, wait for the punchline. Who <laughs> <laughs> can spend way too long making one picture? <laughs> so when you're working on an assignment and say, you know, sometimes it's only a week you have to do something, you kind of need to move it along. Um, so there, there would be a time when we were doing assignments where we'd have Polaroids and keep a notebook and say, okay, we have this picture, we don't need it again. Let's move it along, find something else. So I think, yeah, that was one of the things that I brought to the collaborative teamwork was the... Uh, the arc of the, the arc, story. The arc of and variety of creating pictures. Right. Well, I could be happy just making a good picture better and better Photographing and better. that same damn palm tree <laughs> 200 times in different light. It's like, okay, how many pictures of palm trees are they going to use? <laughs> How have you been able to remain passionate about photography? What is it about photography that lends itself to a lifetime of, of work? That's a great question. I it's, guess. Yeah. I was just going to say that, I mean, it's almost harder in these days um, when there's such massive volumes of photographs. Um, you know, there's, you know, all the social media. I mean, it's trying to find your own voice within all of that chatter out there in the world and finding um, a place where your vision can resonate is becoming harder, I think. Um, but we still have a passion and a care about what we believe in. Um, so we keep going forward. And I should say, you know, we do hit the wall every so often, um, but then we'll go and go back to some of our favorite photography books, you know, look at Eggleston, look at 
Walker Evans, look at Robert Frank, um, and just kind of melt in how amazing the images are and, you know, how they moved the medium of photography. How did they push mm -hmm. it to a new level? How did it change the direction, you know, in ways that, you know, Mozart and Beethoven, you know, changed the course of music, um, just understood something that they were trying that they were failing at at the beginning and worked it through and kept working it. It's an incredible amount of work to build up a vision. You know, it's not a portfolio, it's a vision. So people want to know that this is the way you see and this is what your world is about. I always remember when Austin first showed us work. Um, this was before your thesis show at Pratt. And I thought the work was wonderful, you know, these very sensitive and revealing portraits of, you know, people you knew and your family. Um, and it was, I thought, a great body of work. And then when you went on the road, uh, can I say as a musician? <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> Aspiring. You know, see these incredible Instagrams and these little snapshots, not snapshots, little details of life that were um, reverberating mm. with culture and civilization. Mm -hmm. and, you know, they weren't about details. They were just wonderful. And I think that ability to change gears, you know, was something I've always admired in you. Well, I am incredibly flattered. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. We touched on this a little bit, but what is it that keeps you interested in Photography Is it the reveal of seeing an image when it's finished, when it's edited, when it's printed out, when it's in publication? What get, What's the thrill for you? Is it releasing the shutter? Working. Um, being out there, in the field, in nature, in whatever, and waiting to be challenged by something that engages me and wants me to make a picture of it. And then beginning that process of working it and becoming it and understanding it and making it better and not leaving until it's better. Um, I love that. And it's the moment when, you know, you're out there sometimes, you know, we all know this for days, you know, and you feel like you're never going to make a good picture again. Nothing is interesting you. You're bored. You're really struggling. And then, bang, something hits you and you are excited and the adrenaline's pumping, and that's the moments. That's what I live for um, when I'm engaged by something out there that's challenging me. I think um, for me, it's still the idea that photography is like this key that allows you to unlock certain doors, and it's a process of discovery. And it make, even now, we're working on a project here in New York City on nature in the city, urban trees. And so that idea of going out with a camera allows me, or gives me a reason to go and explore the city, which maybe I'd, I don't know, be too lazy to do. I'm not sure what it is, but it's, um, and then, you know, there's a certain curiosity that your camera allows you to kind of go poke around. And um, yeah, it's a process of discovery still for me. And it's fascinating that both of you your answers were both, they were ideas. They're not something tangible. It's not the print. It's not the, 
the release of the shutter, but uh, you know that that it's a, a puzzle you're trying to figure out or that you're getting to search. And that's fascinating. I like I like yeah, both of your I answers. Yeah, I think that um, yes, I think photography gives me the license to satisfy curiosities about the world and and fit and find a place out there in the world. I don't want photographs to always be like a poem, I guess, um, precise, um, attentive to detail, um, yet able to contain a mystery and a metaphor within the four walls of the photograph. That's always been my joy is to, you know, just work the picture. And again, maybe Diane is more the arc of the story. Um, no? No. She's shaking her head no. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I think that's a, a very um, noble challenge to make a picture that fits all of those elements. Oh, totally. And so, you know, you have to really rise to the occasion to do that. And noble challenges are worthwhile, I think, always. What did Ansel Adams say? A great photographer will expect to get 10 great pictures in their life? Ooh, wow. <laughs> wow. Well, then I've done that. Yeah, great. <laughs> okay. We can all retire now. <laughs> I really appreciate you guys doing this with me. <laughs> it was totally On fun. On that note. Yeah. That was fun. It was fun. Um, Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I want to tell everyone out there to check out uh, everything you can find about uh, <laughs> about Diane and Lynn on online. What's the the website is cookchinchel.com. Right. Thank you guys so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's also great to see you. Yeah. Great and, to see you. Um, Same here. Yeah. We loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Boston. Thanks for listening to Look Over Here and check out lookoverherepodcast.com for photographs of our guests and their work, links to photographers we mentioned in the show, and more. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please share the show with at least one person you think would enjoy it. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week.